Searching the Lord. Amen. Y'all heard about the husband store? New York City, there's a husband store. It's got six floors. Okay. There's some rules uh, about the store, though. You can, only, uh, you can only visit each floor one time. Now, each floor increases with value. But you, can, you can go up, but you can't go back down. Okay. So the husband store is in New York City. So this lady went to the husband store, and she was going to find her a husband. And she gets to the first floor... And the first floor says, uh, this man has a job. And she thought, well, that's, that's pretty good. You know, we got a, a, a husband that's got a job. But my standards are a little bit higher. So she said, I may not come this way again, but let's go to the second floor. So she gets to the second floor, and it says, these men have jobs, and they love kids. And she thought, that's pretty good. But I got to go up one more level. So she goes to the third floor. And there's a sign there that says, this man, These men have jobs. They love kids. And they're extremely good looking. And she said, Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> However, I'm compelled to go further. So she goes to the fourth floor. And on the fourth floor, there's a sign that says, These men have jobs. They love kids. They're extremely good looking. And they help around the house. She said, be still my heart. <laughs> Nevertheless, I feel compelled to go on. So she goes on to the fifth floor. When she arrives there, there's a sign that says, these men have jobs. They love kids. They're extremely good looking. They help around the house. And they have an extremely strong romantic streak. And she nearly melted. Right where she stood. But she said, I just got to go up one more level. So she arrives on the sixth floor. And to her surprise, there was a sign that says, you are visitor number 31,456,000. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists solely to prove that women are never satisfied. It has nothing to do with my message today. There's no correlation there. We're going to look at the Olivet Discourse today. And all you ladies out there, I love you. Don't you be mad at me. Don't you be mad at me. Uh, we're going to be chewing on a steak this morning. We're not going to drink milk today. And I, I know that we like milk. You know, even a baby, when they start eating solid food, they still like a bottle every once in a while uh, at bedtime. But uh, if you're lactose intolerant, today's your day. Uh, we're going to be eating meat. Uh, there may be some milk along the way, but we're going to talk about the Olivet Discourse. So, uh, if you will, turn with me to uh, Matthew 24. Now, we're continuing in our study about the rapture. And there's a lot of confusion about the Olivet Discourse. I find where people are confused about the rapture, uh, nine times out of ten, it's because either the book of Revelation or the Olivet Discourse has not been properly uh, interpreted. So, 
Uh, before we get started, I'm going to ask Brother James, would you pray for me? Ask God to guide me. Amen. Matthew 24. Now, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him a question, or, or two questions, actually. And in verse 3, uh, he says, And he's, as he sat down upon the Mount of Olives, that's why this is called the Olivet Discourse, by the way. It's because it happened on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately. Was anybody here Wednesday night that remembers how many disciples actually asked this question? There was four. You can find that in Mark's gospel. You don't have to turn there. It was Peter, James, John, and who else? Andrew. Very good. Gold star. And they said, tell us. They came unto him privately. So this was not a public discourse, per se. They came to him privately, and they said, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end? Now, the King James says the end of the world. The Greek word is ion, which is the end of the age. And so the Olivet Discourse is in response to this question that the, uh, the, the disciples asked him privately. Now, in order to really understand this, we need to... Let's go to the next slide. By the way, thank you to James. Uh, excuse me, James, not James. <laughs> thank you, James. Thank you to Sam and Maddie and Willie for helping out with the sound. And Tyler's, I don't see him up there, but let's give those guys a hand. Thank you. It's a thankless job. Nobody ever looks at them unless something goes wrong, and they give them the bitter base face, like, ah! I'm sure they see that in their dreams. Ah! They're doing a good job. Thank you. Uh, in order to understand, you need to understand why the gospel writers wrote and how they wrote, because they, they each had a, an intention. Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews. It portrays Jesus as the king. It starts with a genealogy. The genealogy begins with Abraham, because he's the father of the Jews. Mark writes to a Roman audience. He portrays Christ as a servant. There's no genealogy in Mark's gospel, because he's... Uh, you know, portraying him as a servant. Now, Luke is written to the Gentiles. It's actually written to a man. Anybody remember what his name was? Theophilus. And it's for a Greek audience. Now, he doesn't start with uh, Abraham and go to uh, Christ. He starts from Mary and goes back to Adam in his genealogy. And he portrays Christ as uh, son of man. Now, John, he writes the gospel to the whole world. And his gospel is evangelistic. He tells you why he wrote it. At the end of the gospel, he said, I'm writing that you may believe, and that believing you might have life through his name. Uh, John's genealogy starts even farther back than Adam, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go to the next slide. Now, Matthew's gospel is the one we're going to look at this morning. He's the earliest of the gospel writers. Matthew's gospel was the first one. It was written to Hebrew Christians. The early church, to begin with, was comprised almost completely of Jews. No Gentiles. Not until Paul's uh, missionary journeys. So, uh, the church is Jewish. And uh, there's, there's five sermons or discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospel of Matthew shows Jesus as the king. And in the, in the mind of the Jewish person, king and kingdom are like horse and carriage. Or love and marriage, as the song goes. They, 
they go hand in hand. Why are you laughing, James? You're, you're the most newlywed guy here. <laughs> you're, no, you're thinking about Al Bundy, aren't you? Love and marriage, sorry. Some of you got the reference, some of you didn't. It's okay. Matthew records the birth, the birth of the king, his genealogy. Um, the wise men, uh, Jesus, is, his pedigree is the king in Matthew 1. Matthew 2, the wise men come to worship the king. Herod the king is jealous of the king. The wise men bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts for the king. In chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist preaches, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. In chapter 4, uh, Satan offers the king all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no, I'll wait. Uh, worship God only. Then Jesus begins to preach in Matthew 4. And he says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Now in chapter 5, you've got the manifesto of the king. We know it as what? The Sermon on the Mount. That's the manifesto of the king, 5 through 7. Then you get to, um, I'm trying not to run. I get excited here. Then you get chapters uh, 8 and 9. There's miracles that are compressed. The miracles of the king. Chapter 10, Jesus anoints the 12. And he sends them out. And he tells them to preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in chapters 11 and 12, Jesus is rejected by the leaders of Israel. And they attribute his miracles to who? Beelzebub, Satan. And at that moment, the, the offer of the kingdom is rescinded. And then in 13, there's the parables of the kingdom. And then uh, the kingdom is postponed. Matthew 24 and 25 shows us the arrival of the kingdom. And it's only after the tribulation, period. All right, next slide. Let's talk about some prophetic expectations of the Messiah. Who wants to do some reading this morning? Sam, this is the right microphone, right? Yes? No? My eyesight's not what it used to be. You're not shaking your head, no. All right. Who wants to read Isaiah 9 up here? You want to read it, James? Okay. You're on a roll, brother. <laughs> Hold that microphone up there. You can read it off screen if you want to. <laughs> For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment, and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform. All right, hang on to that mic. <clears throat> so this is what the Jews expected. Now, we, we think about the child being born and then him dying on the cross. That's what we think of. The Jews, they saw a child being born and then what? The kingdom. 
the government on his shoulder. That's what they expected, okay? And that's why they had such a hard time when Jesus didn't meet those expectations. Let's go to the next slide. All right, James, why don't you read that one too from Jeremiah 23. King shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. You notice it's in all caps there. That's Jehovah Sidkenu. That's one of the names of God. Probably my favorite name of God. Because it means that I can be the righteousness of God in him. I can be made right with God because of what Jesus did. But that's what they're expecting, right? They're looking for a Messiah. He's going to be a king. Let's go to the next slide. All right, James, you want to read that one from Daniel 2, verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. The Jews had suffered through Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and now Roman domination. They longed for him. Yes. So remember uh, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Remember he saw that statue? Had the head of gold, the arms of silver, the thighs of brass, and the legs of iron? Remember that? So the Jews knew about that. They'd already gone through all those various empires. So they're looking for this kingdom. That's going to come. All right, next slide. I'll give James a break here for a minute. Now, why would the Jews think that the kingdom was about to come? Well, remember Gabriel told Daniel when the Messiah was coming. That's amazing to me. Gabriel told Daniel exactly when the Messiah would come. And all the Jewish leaders knew this. And yet they all missed it, didn't they? Every one of them. Um, John the Baptist appears. And he's just, they're expecting Elijah to come. And here's this Elijah-like figure who's proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. Jesus is preaching and teaching with authority. They said, never a man ever spake like this guy before. He's not like the scribes. Jesus has performed many miracles and healings. What about old Lazarus? He's been in the grave so long, by now he, he stinketh. He's like some of us. Got some stinking thinking. Now, Jesus has just raised him from the grave after four days. Do you think that they thought anything would be impossible for Jesus? No. Here's a man who's got control over death itself. I didn't put this in the slide. But remember, they had also seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And who else did they see with Jesus? Does anybody remember? Moses and Elijah. That's a pretty big deal. You know what I think is cool about that? Is that Peter recognized them. He'd never seen a picture of Elijah. They didn't have any Polaroids back then. Remember the old Polaroid? You used to shake it and it would... Peter didn't create him. Jesus, Jesus did. Okay, okay. Um, Peter recognized 
Jesus. And he recognized Elijah, and he recognized Moses. Even though they were born long after Moses and Elijah had lived. So will you know our loved ones in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you'll have knowledge. You'll know even as he is known. All right. Also, Zechariah had predicted that the Messiah would come riding in on a donkey. And the king would present himself in that fashion. So that's why on Palm Sunday, the crowds were hailing him and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, let's go to the next slide. Now let's go to the immediate context of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 23. We read the Bible sometimes in a fashion that we don't read any other document. We pull things just completely out of context. And we try to insert our own ideas. Matthew 23. All right, James, I'm going to put you to work again. James, Matthew 23, read verses 35 through 39. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah's son, Caius, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, for ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name. All right, a lot of stuff here. Now notice uh, in verse 37, he doesn't say, Oh, Wadesboro, oh, Wadesboro. Oh, Peachland, oh, Peachland. What does he say? Sounds pretty Jewish, doesn't it? And he says, How often I would have gathered you. The Greek word is episonago. That sounds like synagogue. It's a Jewish gathering. But he says, You were unwilling now, not everybody, but the Jewish uh, leadership was unwilling. And he said, their house. Notice he didn't say, my house. He said, your house. What was their house? The temple. Now, there's a condition that must precede the kingdom. And this is the key to understanding the Olivet Discourse. It's, that, it's crucial to understand this. Jesus is not coming to earth again until something happens. And it's that last point there. Notice Jesus says, You're not going to see me again, Jerusalem, leadership of Israel. You're not going to see me again. But he didn't say ever. He said until. You're not going to see me again until you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. That's a messianic psalm. That's when Israel is going to see their Messiah again 
Not for the first time, but for the second time. And then they will accept him. And Matthew 24 is, is explaining how Israel gets to that point to where they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the only way they're going to get to that point is for God to humble them through the tribulation period. Jeremiah 30 says that it's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved out of it. All right, let's go to the next slide. Um, James, would you read Matthew 24, 1 through uh, 4? And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. All right, thank you. So Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, and that must have been mind-blowing to them. This was not Solomon's temple, because that was destroyed in 586 B.C., this is Zerubbabel's temple. This is the second temple. And it was expanded upon by Herod. Um, James, would you read John 2.20 there? That's when Jesus had said, destroy this temple and I'll build it up, raise it up in three days. But he was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the, the temple, uh, the structure of the temple. And they misunderstood him. But notice that temple had been 46 years in renovation. Uh, Josephus said that if you were to come into the town, into the city, that it was so brilliant that it was like one of the most glorious things you'd ever seen in your life. One of the wonders of the ancient world was, was Herod's temple. And Jesus said, this thing's going to be destroyed. Now, by the time of Jesus... The, um, the temple had become sort of a good luck charm, if you will, a symbol of national pride. And, you know, and I think about when we were attacked on September the 11th, uh, both we, we were attacked on several symbols, weren't we? Symbol of our wealth and our security, the Pentagon and the, uh, the World Trade Center. Now, uh, back in Jeremiah's day, before the temple was destroyed the first time, they had that same kind of attitude. They thought nobody can mess with us because we've got the temple. Uh, we're God's chosen people. So James, would you read from Jeremiah there? Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. <laughs> so apparently they said it three times. I guess that was like a magic formula, you know, good luck charm. If we say it three times, nobody will will invade us or mess with us. And Jesus said, this thing's going to be destroyed. Let's go to the next slide. Now the apostles, uh, they ask him, when shall these things be? In other words, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Now it's interesting, 
Matthew does not answer that question. Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, Luke does answer it. You know, we're not going to look at Luke this morning. But Matthew does answer the second question. But they did what the apostles wisely connected the dots. And they understood, excuse me, there's a fly up here. They understood that they connected the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. All right, I'll give you a workout again, James. Zechariah 14, 4. They had a prophecy that they were privy to. You want to read that? So they understood that, um, that the armies were going to come against Israel and that, that Christ, the Messiah, was going to stand on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> Don't you find it interesting that the very place that he's going to return? Uh, let's just call that ground zero. <laughs> That's ground zero. And they rightly connected the dots. And it says that he'll, he'll stand his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and there's going to be a great earthquake, he says. And, and presumably, the temple would be destroyed when that earthquake takes place. So they, they connected those dots. Let's go to the next slide. There's only a few more. Now, the second question they asked, some people see it as two questions. It's actually just one. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's just, it's one. If you see it in Greek, you'll see it's only one question. Um, what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, when we read coming, here's what we think. We think about Jesus leaving the earth, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, going back to heaven, and then coming back from heaven to earth the second time. We, when we read that, I say we, because is there anybody Jewish in here this morning? A descendant of Abraham? No? <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, probably not. I can safely assume that we're probably not. But when we read that, we read second coming, don't we? Isn't that what you think when you read that? When, when are you going to come again, Jesus? They're not thinking about him dying on the cross, even though he's told them three times in the Gospel of Matthew. They're not thinking about him dying on the cross, going back to heaven, and then coming back to earth again. They're thinking about the kingdom being ushered in within a matter of days. Um, and we know this for, for a number of reasons, but the Old Testament prophets, they saw the coming of Messiah... And the kingdom is being one event. They didn't see all the things that we know now. Um, so, and again, coming is the, is the Greek word parousia, which means presence. Now again, we read it, we, we see second coming, but they saw it in terms of manifestation. Jesus, when are you going to let them know who you are and show them who's boss and 
in the words of that great theologian, Elvis Presley, take care of business. <laughs> when are you going to get rid of these guys and, sh and break off the yoke? All right, let's go to the next slide. Now, some people read the church into this, and to do that is a big mistake. Big mistake. The church was a mystery. Mystery is something that's only revealed in the New Testament. Only Matthew even makes a mention of the church. He does it in uh, Matthew 16, and I think again in Matthew 18. He's in Caesarea Philippi. He said, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Future tense. So they couldn't even conceive, really, of a, of a church at that point. Paul is the one who explains the mystery of the church. Romans 16, 25, Ephesians 3, and Colossians 1. So to read the church into this discourse is to insert an idea that has not been revealed yet. We read it and we see church. We see, Jesus, when are you coming back for the church? That's not what they're asking. It's, to read the church into this would be an anachronism. Anybody know what an anachronism is? Yes, no? <laughs> A few honest men, appreciate it. Um, it's something that's out of time or out of place. I'll give you an illustration, okay? It would be like you're watching your favorite episode of Andy Griffith, okay? And all of a sudden, Barney's riding around in a squad car, and he whips out an iPhone, and he updates his Twitter status. You know that something's wrong there, right? Why? Because when they filmed Danny Griffith, there was no iPhone. It would be like Aunt B. <laughs> and you know how she used to get that little thing and she'd connect with a switchboard, you know, connect me with so-and-so. It would be like her dispensing with that whole thing and whipping out her iPad and sending a Facebook message to Charles over here. That would be out of time, wouldn't it? Right? So to read the church into Matthew 24, that's an anachronism. It's, it's not, that wasn't in their mind. They hadn't been taught that yet. So that's not the question they're asking. And that's not the answer that Jesus is giving. Okay? Are y'all still with me here this morning? I, I feel like I'm just not, I'm not hitting on much, but, but y'all keep praying for me. <laughs> All right. An anachronism. You'll remember anachronism from now on, though, won't you? Barney and Aunt B. See, I know how to relate to you. All right. The apostles are asking about the kingdom. Even after, look, guys, even after the cross, the resurrection, Jesus is about to go back to heaven, okay? And he's had an amazing Bible study with them. He's taught them everything from uh, Moses to the Psalms. James, read Acts one uh, up there. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Are they asking about the rapture? What are they asking about? 
the kingdom. Next slide. Last, next to last slide. Phew. Buckle your seatbelts. Now, if you want Jesus to talk about the rapture, you've got to look in the right discourse. He's not talking about it in the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about it in the upper room. Let's look at some of the differences. Matthew 24 is the Olivet. John 13 is the upper room. Where does the Olivet Discourse take place? Mount of Olives. Why is it called the Olivet Discourse? It's because we're confused by all of it. Right? That was a bad joke, sorry. The Upper Room Discourse takes place where? Oh, wow. Dude. All right. Now, here's what you need to understand. The, the Olivet Discourse takes place on day three of the Passion Week. The Upper Room Discourse takes place on day six. So the truth they received in the Upper Room Discourse, they had not received on day three. Are you with me? It's like, I know things now that I didn't know when I was in the third grade, okay? Maybe not a whole lot more, but <laughs> I, I know more now than I did then. They knew more in the upper room than they did on day three of the Passion Week. Uh, the, 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 the general focus of the Olivet Discourse is farewell to Israel. Guys, your temple's going to be destroyed. You're not going to see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The upper room discourse, however, is full of promise, isn't it? I'm going away, Jesus says. That's the first reference to the rapture is in the upper room, guys. Are you with me? He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I will come again and receive you into myself. That where I am, that's the rapture, guys. They were not taught that until day six. So don't read that into the Olivet Discourse. All right, Israel's future in the Olivet Discourse, what's going to happen? The Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. What's going to happen for the church? The Holy Ghost is coming. That's a happy time, amen? And He's going to be with you. He's going to abide with you. How long? Forever. Praise God. Olivet Discourse is heavy stuff, man. Upper room discourse is hallelujah stuff. <laughs> you know, Jesus is going away, but he said, is it good for you that I go away? Because if I don't go away, the Holy Ghost is not coming. But if I go, I'll send him unto you, and he's going to be in you. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. I'm about to get wired up like James did earlier. Man, I should have got you to lay hands on me before I preached. I'm like a diesel engine. I wait till the last thing to get warmed up. Hallelujah. Y'all know that. You know that. Olivet Discourse talks about the destruction of the temple. Upper Room Discourse is talking about Christ's imminent departure. You know, guys, I'm getting ready to leave. Are they looking for Jesus to leave at the Olivet Discourse? No. What are they looking for him to do? March on into Jerusalem and take over. Two, two completely different things there. The Olivet Discourse is chock full of Old Testament Scripture. The abomination of desolation, the, the moon turning to blood, and all that kind of stuff. Not so in the New Testament, in the upper room. Upper room's new, new material. We hadn't covered this before, guys. He said, I have a lot of things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. 
In Olivet Discourse, he's speaking to the apostles in the 12 tribe fashion. In the Upper Room Discourse, he's teaching, talking to them in the Ephesians 2 uh, sense, where they're the foundation of the church, the apostles and the prophets. Do you see the difference there? Is it, is it becoming abundantly muddy or clear to you? All right, why don't, I, why don't I just go to the last slide here and you'll just breathe a sigh of relief. Glory to God. Here you are. You can hear the music, the chariots of fire, can't you? We're running in slow motion on the beach. All right, now some of you are thinking, what, why do I care about any of this? Don't, don't answer that, please. <laughs> but I know some of you are thinking, well... The rapture is going to happen before all that stuff. Why do I even care? Well, number one is God's word. That's not a point on my PowerPoint, but that's the truth. And we need, even though all of it is not written to us, all of it's for us, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. But here's the thing. If you don't get this right, guys, you're going to be confused about a lot of other stuff. Because as we go on through Matthew... And I'm going to try to get done with Olivet Discourse before Christmas. Okay. So there's a lot there. But we're going to do like a 30,000, the view from 30,000 feet kind of thing. We're not going to go every verse and parse that. But if you don't get it right, you're going to be confused. Because there is some stuff in Matthew's Olivet Discourse that sounds a lot like the rapture. There's two grinding at the mill. One's taken and the other's left. Um... He shall gather his elect. There's a trumpet that sounds in the Olivet Discourse. And the elect are gathered from the four winds. And some people will say, aha, that's the rapture. No, 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 no. You have to understand the rapture is not even dealt with in the Olivet Discourse. The church is not even in the Olivet Discourse. Okay? So we need to be straight on it. Another point of application is you need to be able to witness to your Jewish friends if you have any. Now, I know we've got several that live in this, this area. Um, and when you witness to a Jewish person, now you and I, we read Isaiah. And it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we're healed. We read that and we say, yes, that's Jesus Christ. But when a Jew reads that, he, says, he or she says, well, yes, but there's no kingdom. You see what I'm saying here? Because their understanding of prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, the kingdom comes. If you ask a Jew why they don't believe in Jesus, why they don't believe he's the Messiah, they'll say there's no shalom. There's no peace. And so you need to understand that what Matthew's trying to do for his audience is get them to understand the kingdom is still coming It has not been canceled, it's been postponed. And it will come, but it will only come when the tribulation comes and when Israel is brought to its knees, they will call out to the Messiah and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then he will come. You wonder why Satan wants to get rid of the Jews? You ever wondered about that? Uh, Yes, they're God's chosen people from the beginning. But you know why Satan wants to destroy the Jews? It's because if he can wipe out the Jews, he can keep them from saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if they don't say that, what happens or what won't happen? 
Jesus won't come to the world. And what will happen? Satan will be able to stay in charge. You ever thought about that? You ever wonder why Satan wants to exterminate the Jews? He knows this, guys. We don't. But the devil knows it. And that's why in the tribulation period, you ever read Revelation 12? It says the dragon was angry, not with the church, but with who? With the woman. Who is the woman? It's Israel. And, and we'll, we'll, dig, we'll dig into that. By the way, I've already planned, Lord willing, to start preaching the book of Revelation in January. Okay? They're putting it off. But I, um, and I talked to one of my mentors the other day, Dr. Russell Morris. And he said, strangest thing, Henry, God's led me to do the book of Revelation starting in January. I said, wow. Amazing. All right. You also need to know that the king, the king and the kingdom are coming, guys. <laughs> and, that's, and, that's, and that's important to realize, especially after midterm elections. Amen? Because if our hope's in Washington, we're doomed. If our hope's in Raleigh, we're doomed. Oh, dear God, if our hope's in the United Nations, we're doomed. <laughs> but... There is a king that's coming. Amen. Not a politician. Not a president. Not an emperor. But the king of kings and the lord of lords. Amen. He's coming. And we need to be reminded of that. And we have to decide now what side we're going to be on. Because when Jesus comes the second time, he's not coming to play games. He's not coming to die on any cross. He's coming to destroy his enemies. Read your Bible. Oh, yeah. The Jesus that, that's loving and kind, he's coming to destroy his enemies when he comes the second time. So we need to be on the right side of the ledger. There's a day of judgment coming. There's one more point that I didn't put on the PowerPoint. And I jotted it down in a few, a few minutes before the service started. And that is Jesus' short-term prophecy prediction. A lot of people don't ever give any thought to this. Now, Jesus has given some long-range prophecies here. Would you agree? None of the stuff in Matthew 24 has, has happened yet except for the destruction of the temple. All of that stuff is still yet future. And that's why I want to preach this to you is because I believe, and I'm not a prophet nor, nor the son of a prophet. Don't claim to be. Don't, not interested in it. But I believe we could have some more 9-11 type events before the rapture takes place. Our borders are flowing with people that hate us. Islam is, is not a religion of peace, regardless of what your leaders may tell you. And, and, and it's growing in America. Okay, and I, I'm not saying people are going to fly planes into buildings. I don't know. I hope the rapture happens first. That's that's you know, that's what I hope. But we might we might see persecution here. We might see some tragedy. And what you need to understand is that Bible prophecy teaches us that the tribulation does not begin until the signing of the seven year covenant. It doesn't. And I noticed when COVID happened. Whenever COVID first happened, you had prophets all over the internet saying, oh, we're in the tribulation period. It's pestilence. It's, uh, uh, you can't find food in the grocery store. It's famine. That's not famine, guys. That's not famine. Famine is not when you go to the grocery store and they don't have your favorite flavor of Haagen-Dazs. Famine is when you go and there ain't no food there. 
That's famine. You and I know nothing of famine. You and I know nothing of true hunger. And we really need to stop saying stuff like I'm starving to death because we really aren't. And some of us like me have not missed too many meals. Don't say amen on that. But we need to understand short-term prediction of prophecy. Jesus predicted that Peter would betray him. Not one time. That would have been a bold prediction. An unexpected prediction. Out of all the apostles, who would you have predicted to betray, uh, to deny Jesus? Well, you would have predicted Judas, right? Maybe, maybe Bartholomew. Maybe that guy that's got three names, Laddius. Uh, what is his name? Thaddeus, Laddius. See, I don't even remember all of his names. We might have predicted him, but not Peter, right? Peter's the guy who walks on water. He's the guy that says, Jesus, I'll go with you to the end. But Jesus looked him square in the eye and said, Peter, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, not four times, but three times before the cock crows. And lo and behold, what happened? Jesus was 100% accurate in his prophecy. Okay? Jesus predicted... The prophe prophecy teachers never talk about this, Brother Willie, but the short-term prophecy, Jesus said, the temple is going to be destroyed. Around 30 A.D., he predicted that. And exactly within one generation, in 70 A.D., not only was the temple destroyed, but it was fulfilled exactly like Jesus predicted, that not one stone would be left upon another. The temple caught fire, the gold went between the cracks, and they literally busted up all the rocks to get the gold out. So if Jesus can be trusted in his short-term predictions, and he can, because he's God and he's got a 100% track record, then that means everything else that Jesus said is going to happen, it will happen, you can take it to the bank. And we don't know the day or the hour, we don't need to know. But what we do need to know is are we ready? Are we ready to meet the Lord today? You could meet Him today. You could. I'm sure there's a lot of people that meet God that didn't think they were going to meet God that day. Would you stand? I know this is a lot to digest. But I know the Lord wanted me to teach you this because I want you to have it straight. I want you to be straight on it. The Bible says we are not only to preach the word, but we are to rightly divide the word of truth. Jesus Christ has come and died on the cross for your sin and my sin. He's, he has risen from the dead. And we can have eternal life if we will receive him as Lord and Savior. We just, all we have to do right now is just repent. That does not mean that you have to get your life completely cleaned up to come to Jesus. That is not what repent means. Repent means to change your mind and believe the gospel. Wherever you are, now God, God wants you to come just as you are. He will not leave you that way. <laughs> he will not leave you that way. He will begin to work on the inside of you that will manifest on the outside. But if you will come to him simply by faith today. The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he didn't say join the church. He said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you will be saved in your household. Have you believed and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you have not, today is your day of salvation. You may not have another day. If you're a believer here, you're lukewarm, you're playing games with God, time to get real with God. Come just as you are. This altar is open.